0: Thank you. It's a treat to be with you here this morning again. And uh, thanks to Wayne and Catherine for inviting me. Uh, What I thought I would do this morning is give you um, an update on uh, uh, my thoughts about The Flat World. I've got the 3.0 edition of this book coming out um, this summer. And uh, it's coming out because I keep being interested in this subject, and the subject is very alive. And um, try to give you a little bit of my sense of where it's going right now. To understand the world is flat uh, concept, you have to understand that I came to it completely by accident. I wish I could tell you I had it all figured out. It was on a piece of paper and uh, outlined and then came out as a book. In fact, it was completely uh, by accident. Uh, I became the Times foreign affairs columnist in January 1995 and between January 1995 and September 11, 2001, my column really oscillated between uh, what I would call Lexus issues, issues of globalization, technology, finance, and olive tree issues, issues of traditional ethnic conflict, um, uh, nationalism, religion, etc. And I was really in that oscillation mode right up until, as I say, September 11th, when in light of what happened that day, I dropped the Lexus side of my column and spent the next three years covering the, uh, the olive tree wars. Um, I was in that mode right up until February of 2004 when I started doing documentaries for the Discovery Channel. Um, I did one on uh, the roots of 9-11, one on the wall Israel, built in the West Bank, and in February of 2004, I was sitting around with our Discovery team trying to figure out what should we do our next documentary on. And at the time, the big issue that um, seemed to cry out for a documentary was, uh, why does everybody hate America? Uh, Why does everybody hate America? I thought that would be a good subject to tackle. Well, how should we do it? So I had this crazy idea that what we should actually do is go to call centers all over the world and interview young people, foreigners, who spend their days imitating Americans on what they think of America. That's how the whole thing started. And we were literally budgeting out that documentary. Where should we go? Philippines, Costa Rica, Poland, Bangalore, India? Um, We were budgeting out that documentary when John Kerry came out with his blast against Benedict Arnold's CEOs who engage in outsourcing. And suddenly this issue of outsourcing just exploded onto the world stage on the front page of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. So I said, wait a minute, time out. Why don't don't we just do a documentary on that? Why don't we just go to Bangalore, India and do a documentary called The Other Side of Outsourcing, where we explain what is clearly going to be a hot issue in this campaign to American readers and voters. And that's what we decided to do. So on February 15, 2004, I set off for Bangalore with my uh, discovery crew. We shot about uh, 60 hours of interviews in 11 days. And across those 11 days, I got progressively uh, sicker and sicker. And um, it, uh, it was not the Indian food. It was somewhere between um, the Indian entrepreneur who um, wanted to prepare my American tax returns from Bangalore, and the Indian entrepreneur who wanted to write my new software from Bangalore, and the Indian entrepreneur who wanted to read my x-rays from Bangalore, and the Indian entrepreneur who wanted to trace my lost luggage on Delta Airlines from Bangalore, that I got this really sick feeling that while I had been sleeping, while I had been off covering the 9-11 wars, something really big had happened in this globalization story, and I had completely missed it. And it all really came together with the last interview, which was with Nandan Nilekani, the CEO of Infosys, kind of the Microsoft of India. Nandan was an old friend. I was interviewing him in his office. We were sitting on the couch outside, and um, the film crew was setting up inside. And at one point, Nandan said to me, Tom, I, I, I've got to tell you, the global economic playing field is being leveled. The global economic playing field is being leveled, and you Americans are not ready. Oh, I wrote that down on my little laptop. The global economic playing field is being leveled, and you Americans are not ready. Well, we did our interview, and afterwards I got back in my Jeep and uh, rode back to the hotel in Bangalore, which took about an hour, and all along the way I kept rolling over in my mind, as is my habit, what Nandan had said. The global economic playing field is being leveled. And then it sort of occurred to me that what Nandan was really saying was that the global economic playing field was being flattened. And then in kind of the crazy, chemical way these things happened, it just popped into my head that what Nanda Nilakani, India's premier engineer entrepreneur, was telling me was that the world is flat. And he was actually celebrating that fact. And I wrote that down in my notebook, the world is flat. I got to my hotel, ran up to my room. I called my wife here in Bethesda. I said, honey, I am going to write a book called The World is Flat. She now says she thought that was a brilliant idea. (laughs) It's not exactly how I recall the conversation. Uh, But in any event, I did go to my editors and basically say to them, and the publisher of the New York Times, ladies and gentlemen, I need to go on sabbatical immediately. I need to go on sabbatical immediately because my software is out of date. I'm a basic engineer and it's a Java world. My software is out of date and if I don't go on leave immediately, I am going to write something really stupid in the New York Times. It's a great way to get a leave, I have to tell you. (laughs) What can they say? Well, I started this book in March of 2004. I turned it in 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 December. Don't try this trick at home, kids. Um, It sort of blew out my forearms in a fit of passion and, and curiosity to explain to myself what it meant that the world had gone flat. Now, the simple thesis of this book is that there have been three great era of globalization. The first era I call globalization 1.0. It it lasted from 1492 until the early 1800s, the beginning of global arbitrage. And that era shrunk the world from a size large, I would argue, to a size medium. And what really characterized that era of globalization is that you went global through your country. That is, the country, the nation state, was the dynamic agent of globalization. So it was Spain exploring the Americas. uh, France you know, colonizing parts of Africa, um, the Dutch, uh, the East Indies. The agent of globalization was the nation state. Globalization 2.0 began in the early 1800s, as I said. It ended in the year 2000. That's right, it just ended. It shrunk the world from size medium to size small. And I would argue that era of globalization was really driven by countries globalizing. You went global through, your, sorry, companies globalizing. You went global through your company. Whether it was companies searching for markets or companies searching for labor or companies searching for resources, the dynamic agent of globalization in that period, early 1800s till the year 2000, was the company. While you were sleeping, or at least while I was sleeping, we entered globalization 3.0 from the year 2000 to the present. It's shrinking the world from size small to size tiny. But what is really new, really different, really unique, really exciting, and really terrifying about this era of globalization is that it's not built around countries, and it's not built around companies. No, the really new, new thing, the new, exciting, terrifying thing is this era of globalization is increasingly built around individuals. What is really new, really terrifying, and really exciting is the degree to which individuals are now empowered and enjoined, required and enabled to globalize themselves, to create content and globalize it on their own as individuals and to compete, connect and collaborate globally as individuals. That is the essential new feature of this era of globalization. Now how did we get here? Well I would argue we got here through what I call the 10 days that flattened the world, the 10 forces, events and technologies that really created what to me is a kind of flat world platform. Let me go through them very quickly. Some are dates, some are technologies, some are events, companies. Uh, The first is called um, 11-9. Not 9-11, 11-9. Because in a wonderful uh, Kabbalistic accident of dates, the Berlin Wall actually fell on 11-9. November 9, 1989. And the fall of the wall, um, uh, I, I call this first flattener, when the wall came down and the windows came up because in another wonderful accident of dates, the Windows operating system shipped just a few months after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So these two things actually happened at the same time. The wall came down and the windows came up. Now the fall of the wall was a huge flattening force perceptually, because the fall of the wall is what allowed us to think about the world again as a single flat plane. I dare say, at your universities before 1989. There were courses on America's eastern policy and its western policy, its northern policy and its southern policy, but no one had to talk about America's global policy, or whatever country you're from's global policy. You couldn't have a global policy. There was a wall in the way. And the fall of the wall is really what allowed us perceptually to think of the world again as a more seamless and single, what I would call, flat unit. Now, the rise of the windows, The rise of the Windows is where this whole individual era begins. For me, the rise of the Windows is really a metaphor for the Windows-enabled personal computer, or the Apple-enabled personal computer. What the PC did was it enabled and empowered individuals, individuals to become authors of their own content in digital form. Now, that may sound like a lot of gobbledygook, but it's actually, I think, very important. We've all been authors of our own content ever since cave women and cave men etched on cave walls. But with the PC, we as individuals were able to author our own content, words, photos, data, spreadsheets, video, in digital form, in the form of bits and bytes. And once your content was in digital form, it could suddenly be manipulated in so many more ways and sent so many more places as an individual. That leads to the second flattener. The second flattener is also a date. I consider this date the most important day in your lifetime. And that date is 8995, August 9th, 1995. Because on August 9th, 1995, a small startup company in Mountain View, California, called Netscape, went public. And your world has never been and will never be the same since, for a couple reasons. First has to do with Netscape's invention. Netscape invented this device Called a browser. And this browser was a device that allowed you to illustrate on a computer screen anything locked away in an internet file and soon to be websites. It was the Netscape browser that actually brought the internet to life, soon to be taken over by the Microsoft Explorer browser and now Firefox. Never mind, it was the Netscape browser that actually made the internet a device that grandma and grandpa, grandson and granddaughter. Could all use with equal facility. It was the Netscape browser that actually created the internet as we know it today. That was the first reason Netscape's going public was a huge flattener. The second reason, though, equally important, is that Netscape's going public that morning, the Netscape IPO, on the morning of 8, 9, 95 at 9 o'clock, is what triggered the dot-com boom. That's what triggered the dot-com bubble, and that's what triggered the crazy, absurd, ridiculous, utterly outrageous overinvestment of $1 trillion, that's trillion with a T, into fiber optic cable in five years. And that crazy, absurd, ridiculous overinvestment of a trillion dollars into fiber optic cable in five years, accidentally, with nobody having planned it, made Beijing, Bangalore, and Bethesda all next door neighbors. Remember how it happened? Netscape went public at 9 a.m. that morning. Its stock was priced at $28. Their investment banker, Morgan Stanley, wanted the price to be $32, but Netscape's CEO, Jim Barksdale, said, no, 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 if this fails, I want it to be remembered as a $20 stock. Netscape opened that morning at $71. It closed that day at $56, and we all looked at that, or your parents all looked at that, And they said, whoa, there is gold over them there hills. (laughs) And what did they do? They went out and they bought every dot-com that moved. And when they did, they accidentally, with nobody planning it, funded the massive overwiring of the world with fiber optic cable. We created such a glut of fiber optic cable. Remember all those individuals suddenly able to author their own content on their PCs? Suddenly, thanks to that glut of fiber optic cable, everyone was able to send their global content anywhere virtually for free.